Welcome to Credit Union Conversations Podcast with your host, Mark Ritter, a forward-thinking CEO who excels in helping credit unions, small businesses, and real estate investors succeed. Join Mark as he explores current trends, interviews industry experts, and get fresh insights on optimizing your operations and delivering the best possible services to credit union members. Hello, everyone. This is Mark Ritter, CEO of MBFS and your host of Credit Union Conversations. Thank you for joining me today as we kick off here in January 2023. I'm excited to see where this goes. We're going to have a really interesting year, a lot of different stuff going on. There's a lot of different opinions out there. And on today's show, uh, this is one of those episodes that I like to do. They're much more fun for me. Uh, I'm not talking with one particular person and beating up one topic for a long, long time. Uh, This is kind of a shotgun. Uh, My good friend and credit union industry expert, advocate, and all good things credit union, Kirk Drake is joining us today. Kirk, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing today, Mark? Great. Sounds awesome. So, Kirk, I know a little bit more about you, and many people in our audience probably do as well. But for those, the listeners that don't, tell us your origin story and what you're up to today. Uh, Yeah, so I originally started in banking back in high school. I got recruited to... um, be on a to run a high school student bank and i kind of jumped into that side of things and then moved to the east coast for college started working at a couple of credit unions uh in the dc area and then i got hooked on cuso uh kind of stuff and and so went down the road of starting a cuso called ongoing operations uh that recently sold the trellis um and one called c wallet that went to the michigan credit union league that was probably about 10 years ago uh and then uh, have created or been part of three or four others, including d- the Double Check QSO, one called Painted Hills that does uh, some loan participation, memorization, uh, fintech kind of integration work, and then most recently working with one called Open Banking Solutions. Uh, and so uh, I-, I like to say I'm the I'm an expert in multi credit union owned QSOs. I don't think there's many people that have done four or five, uh, you know, multi credit union owned tech QSOs out there. Uh, and so I, I can tell you all the things not to do. Um, not necessarily <laughs> sure I figured out what to do yet, but uh, I can at least uh, tell you lots of pitfalls to avoid. And so, yeah, that, that's kind of been my history today. Um, spent a lot of my time on Credit Union 2.0, which helps credit unions and fintechs kind of work together and navigate how do we make these partnerships stronger and how do we, you know, create mutually beneficial relationships out there, combining kind of entrepreneurial, innovative things into the credit union space. And, uh, and then on the side, I've, I've got a winery with my wife, I've got three kids. Uh, they are 11, 11 and 12. I do some stand up comedy and uh, I like to hike and travel the world. So that, I, I don't think there's, there isn't much time left in the day after all of that. That is a busy, busy schedule. Yeah. So who's your favorite stand up comic? Uh, so all time favorite is probably Mitch Hedberg. I, I just have loved his stuff. Lately, I've been very much into Chappelle. Uh, and just finding his art of, he told a joke backwards in a recent set that I just thought was, you know, he kind of told you the punchline and then had a 20 minute, you know, prologue going all the way back to the origination. And it was funny even when you got to the punchline again at the end and just thought that was a masterful way of deconstructing the joke. I actually went, and this shows you how much of a bad father I am. 
I took my 14-year-old son at the time to go see Chappelle on Broadway a couple years ago. And <laughs> it was it was the most fun I've ever had in a night out. And it was so enter- it was magical to watch this guy work and work a huge yeah. theater and it was like there was 20 people in the room he was talking to yeah yeah i mean his showmanship is absolutely incredible and his mastery of the art is is equally good there and uh having done stand-up comedy four or five times i'm certainly in the amateur category i can tell you you know that i can see the difference you know most people would see the first 90 percent. i can see five percent more but I still can't see that. I, I'm sure there's another 5% beyond that that would take me 20 years to get to. That's great. So, yeah, good, good luck in that. I need, to, I need to catch a show one time. But more importantly, I think I need to be a heckler one time in one of yeah, your audiences. So. Janu- January 9th, we'll be at uh, Gotham, um, Gotham Hall in New York. So. Oh, re- awesome. Yeah, so I'll get you the that, details. I would certainly want to check it out. So... So on to the boring credit union stuff, because we could probably talk about wine and comedy and movies and everything <laughs> else for about the next three hours. Sure. So I, I'm going to shotgun out some topics, and, and I want to hear your reaction to them um, uh, on ping pong some of these, and we'll figure out all the industry's problems and how to fix it in about 20 minutes. So Perfect. So this is the time of the year where every... A bunch of credit unions have announcements that say, you know, 20, 30 year CEO retires and blank person is checking uh, is the new CEO. We're looking forward to them growing the credit union. You went through a CEO transition last year because, uh, you know, you, you were, you've been CEO of multiple companies and have kind of shifted and do a lot of different things. Many of my credit unions transition. What do you think is the right way to, to replace our CEOs? And what do you think is more the wrong way to replace our CEOs? Sure. Yeah, I think, and I've seen also a number of credit unions that I think nailed this. So some of, some of the ones like Tower Federal Credit Union, where they've had four or five CEOs uh, in their entire history. Wioki is another one, Maps Credit Union, where really very early on, they kind of find someone that they think they can groom and be the right replacement. They spend five, six years working um, with the former CEO uh, and it's it's really obvious to everyone where this is going to go and who's going to get it. And it's not this, you know, crazy last minute search where five people internally think they might have a chance and they buy for it. And then the board picks one. Uh, you know, I, I think that part doesn't work well. Uh, I, honestly, the ones that really seem to work the best are either the board makes that decision early and and they have this kind of co-role for a period of time or the former CEO actually kind of selects the person with a little bit of board involvement, and then there's a warm handoff um, at the right time that way. Those are the two that seem to really work the best, where you aren't getting um, cultural upheaval because the board hired someone that didn't have the nuance of how the, the existing CEO kind of led it day to day. And so the new person comes in and on paper looks great, but has a very different personality and strategy and approach. And the next thing you know, 30% of your team's turning over uh, and, and you're going in a very different direction. And I'm not sure that that's actually 
I don't think long-term that actually produces good organic results. I think it just kind of creates upheaval that then has to be redone and, and eventually will come back into, um, it's kind of like a rubber band that eventually comes back to its original shape. But we have the illusion that we did something great in that change mechanism. I, I really could tell stories for the next hour uh, of yeah. just what you're talking about on more the opposite side, because I've really come to the to the realization that nobody gets hired as an outsider by saying, you know what, you have a really good organization and I'm just going to tweak it slightly and make some nuanced changes and you have a great team. Yeah, I, I just feel like eight times out of 10, probably when there's a new, per like an outsider, it essentially, the, the strategy is we're going to gut this place and everything's going to change and all the people are going to change. And whatever whatever we, I, I, I have seen more than one situation where whatever we were doing before, that was wrong. And it's a good thing I'm here because I'm going to bring in my people to fix these issues that were never really issues to begin with. And it only lasts for like three to five years. And then the person moves on to the next thing and the team moves with them and everything goes. And then they spend three to five years getting back to where they were originally. <laughs> yeah. Ge generally, I call them the tumbleweed CEO oh, yeah. that uh, kind of rolls from place to place, fixing all the problems. Uh, but when you really look under the covers, they, they, they just rip up the place and like to t short term gain is pretty easy. Yeah, well, and, and I'll be candid in that. I think for most of my career, uh, up, even even when I started Ogo, it was you know a two to five year stint someplace, fix all the things that was broken, and then I would declare very early, I'm not going to be here long term. I just want to fix stuff and move on. And it was probably halfway through Ogo's existence where I was like, you know, I basically I had to start fixing the, my own self generated pile of crap, right? And and said, boy, I really need to actually build if i want to build something of sustainable value uh i really can't be all that focused on short-term fixes and getting it to the next level i really have to be building culture strategy team and those people who are going to carry this torch forward and that really changed my leadership philosophy in there to to do that and it stopped being this um you know rapid fire you know burn it all down and start over uh process yeah, I, I really agree with you 100% there. I, I, I think it has to be. Now, now, there are the outliers and the extremes. And, you know, what, when we turn the camera off me and you could probably name some names where, yes, this credit union does indeed need a uh, torch to the ground and all new people. Those are the extreme outliers and not the norm for probably right. 90 to 95%. But, yeah, you know, sometimes people love to, to take those straw man arguments of, oh boy, you know, we used to do this and I don't like it as the reason for just torching the whole credit union. Right. I, I actually think it's very similar to the core conversion situation, which is for the most part, no matter how hard you try, a core conversion is not smooth for the people behind the scenes. Right. Um, they've gotten better over the years, but it's still disruptive because the way you do things changes substantially, which then impacts the employees, which impacts the members, you know, and, and, and yada, yada, yada. And I think the CEO transition, if, if done in a similar kind of abrupt, we must meet this deadline versus here's the signs when we know the time is right. Um, you know, th 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 those are two different ways to measure the same thing. 
And I think if you're focused on what are the indications that the transition is ready and it's time to move this on versus we're picking this arbitrary date and time and and going to you know, rip off the Band-Aid you know, exactly when we originally planned. Okay. All right. Next topic. I have seen probably for the last three to four years, credit unions have done an, a great job in building loan portfolios, and they have done everything they can do to beat off deposits. The market has completely flipped on us. Yep. And, you know, many times when you talk about credit unions say, I've, I've, we have this many new members. What it is, it's a new member. They slap five bucks in the share account that they have to keep, and then they open an, a loan. And we've done a lousy job at attracting complete members, new members who are going to have deposits, which everybody is screaming about now, and loans. What can we do to increase new members who are truly members or increase deposits and get that out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some shorter term tactical things uh, that I've seen. And certainly with this flip, I've been looking for fintech specifically that are more impactful on the deposit side. So uh, there's one Quillo, which has a, a product called CD Plus or Freedom CD Plus that is much more like a Marcus style CD account where the member puts in a amount of money, they pick the term, which then uh, dynamically, they could say 22 months or 38 months, whatever they want, and it dynamically creates the rate. Uh, and then they, it encourages them to keep depositing money. And the only penalties would be on the original core deposits, not on the, the delta of money added. And so it's a much more millennial designed uh, or Gen Z designed um, CD because you have an entire population of people who've never saved money that way for the last 25 years because they could always earn money someplace. They could earn more money someplace else outside of the financial industry or financial institution industry. Um, and so that, that I think is a pretty compelling product. They also are then able to bring in almost like indirect loans, indirect deposits where they're finding new members to come in and match into the organization and put those deposits on the, on the balance sheet and begin that, that process. Um, I don't think that addresses the second part of your question of kind of how do you move the member up the value chain in that regard. I think it's a long-term problem that I've seen since the you know, 25, 30 years I've been in the industry, which is whatever macroeconomic trend is occurring that the Fed is printing or contracting monetary supply directly impacts credit unions balance sheets and their ratios, which then has uh, examiners all over uh, you know, the credit union to fix whatever this balance sheet issue might be, which distracts them from building good organic, you know, long-term solutions. And because we can't raise outside capital, right, we're stuck in this. We must react to whatever the short-term volatility balance sheet issue is. And so this is a, a big purpose of the Painted Hills QSO was to try and smooth out 10% of that on the deposit side or the loan side to have a more consistent balance sheet so that you have levers to to pull with loans or deposits, um, depending on what's going on within your existing membership. So you can be really long-term focused on those relationships with the existing members with less concern about the, the short-term yield. You know, kind of yeah, of I did a study a few years ago on the loan growth, and, and I separated it out between the type of field of membership that a credit union had. Mm -hmm. 
And what I really found out in those numbers is there was a remarkable difference in growth between a community-chartered credit union and credit unions that had association-based, employer group-based, where, you know, let's face it, you could probably walk in, you know, join friends of the local public parks and open an account versus a strict geographical base. And I really think that you know it's it's not my father's credit union for his local factory where he just had everything at the credit union right now, it, I, I do think you have more of those deposit shoppers you have more of those loan shoppers and that unicorn member in the in the middle is just decreasing every year who says oh, i love you no matter what you do all of everything here that that's i think that's just getting smaller every year and that as those people age, they don't they don't borrow as much. They just have deposits. Yeah, it, it's sad. I mean, I, I'm I'm Gen X. My wife's millennial, and I can tell you, it it's it's not that there isn't loyalty. It's that it's it's so easy to fracture that loyalty, right? Um, which I guess probably conflicts with the idea of loyalty in the first place, right? But you know, at its core, if I'll give you an example. One of the credit unions I work with, they have this great rewards program. Uh, so I signed up. I'm using it. Uh, love it. Uh, but apparently when you hit $600 in annual rewards, you stop earning rewards. And they only have like 25 members who ever hit that. So their their feeling is, why bother fixing it? Right. And my feeling is, well, those are your 25 best, most loyal members. <laughs> and now you've caused me to go... Well, geez, uh, there's no upper limit on my Amex. There's no upper limit on this other card. So I guess I'll go find another one that gives me mostly the same stuff, uh, and and doesn't you know? And, and so yeah, I call you know that that loyalty fractionalization I think is a dangerous piece where, and it's it's the same thing where, you know, I've been worked at credit unions that were in periods of time where they were really trying to grow deposits and they didn't want more loans, so their loan rates were higher and the deposit rates were better. And then the macroeconomic shift happens and they shift to being trying to, you know, being competitive on loans and not being as competitive on deposits. Well, that shift may not align with what I need going on in my life right now. Right. And so if we don't find a way to continue to meet the members needs right now, then all we're doing is sending that member someplace else. Right. Because otherwise we've, um, you know, essentially said, well, you were a net saver but I don't need net savers right now. So I know you're supposed to be loyal to me and I'm supposed to be loyal to you, but I'm not going to really participate in the net saver game. Right. Or uh, you're a net borrower and I'll give you great rates on borrowing because I need borrowing until I don't. And then, sorry, like I'll just give you okay rates at that point. Right. And so I think that's where, you know, aligning your demographics with your, your balance sheet, you know, demographics and NALM portfolios is an even harder thing to do, but it's also why, I think if you can have those wholesale outlets in those places that fill in the gaps so that you can be more loyal to your members' needs and they can be more loyal you know, to you in that, ends up really driving that longer-term value proposition. Because I think as credit unions get larger, they're able to balance those things better. Yeah, I, I just think that credit unions really need to focus on an all-of-the-above strategy, doing a little bit of everything. And not so much. So they don't, you know, today they're reacting to liquidity crunches and deposits because it hasn't been a focus. Right. Where, 
if you're if you're continually looking for de- low cost deposits, if you're continually looking for members who could need loans, you're always going to have that balance and hedge to to move forward. Well, I mean, if you if you were to go back twelve months and say, "Boy, I've got all this ex- excess liquidity. It's going to cost me a little more quarter basis point to lock it up for eighteen months, right?" But I'm going to go ahead and lock up two hundred million dollars and and pay you know at be slightly above market with some cds and lock this stuff in place you would have locked in a 24 month competitive advantage <laughs> you know yes to everybody else and of course it looked like boy rates haven't shifted we haven't we haven't seen rates go up like this in forever so of course we're not doing that but you know and that's the balancing act that everybody has right how do you pick the right you know balance of those things but i think there is a, a value chain philosophy that that allows you to kind of you know squeeze that water balloon one way or the other slightly more yes to give absolutely yeah so next up is a topic that i know very little about for multiple reasons and i am in pennsylvania and not only that i'm in rural pennsylvania where life tends to be a little bit more backwards and conservative and I say that lovingly because I choose to be here. So it's everybody thinks one of the panaceas coming up for corporate America, for business America, for deposits, for sales, will be legalization of marijuana slash cannabis reforms. And I do think it's going to happen at the federal level for banking. Uh, because it just doesn't make sense to have huge piles of cash sitting around America. Uh, it's just not safe and it's not good for the economy. Now, you're on the West Coast where, let's just say, marijuana laws have been a little more liberal than my area of the country. So you probably see this and live it around a little bit more than me. What are your thoughts on the whole marijuana banking industry, good, bad, and different? Uh, where, where do you think this could go and what ha- when it actually maybe comes to fruition? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is, um, so, so I live in Oregon. I've seen it there. I saw the expansion of California and Washington and, and each of those you know, segments. And now Oregon's gone one step further where they've decriminalized all drugs. <laughs> you can do whatever the heck you want here. Um, the, the banking side of that, of course, is really just focused on the marijuana piece of it. And... I think this is your classic innovator's dilemma kind of problem or first mover advantage. So MAPS Credit Union came into Oregon Credit Union, did dispensary work, et cetera. They've now had probably 10 years of that market locked up while everybody else goes, well, I'll do it when it becomes a little more legal, when the feds say it's okay, you know, and something, you know, in that nature. So the early movers who took a little bit of risk, not only, they may not win 10 years from now when it is, you know, universal across the country and you can kind of go down that road. But they'll have had 10, 15, 20 years to perfect the business, to write off the two or three rounds of mistakes, the to, to really get it operationally, to know it inside and out. And no new entrant is going to be able, the, the new entrants are going to have to spend a lot more money to get that than those who, who were already in it. And so I think this is one of those things. I, I think if you're going to get in it, you better hurry up and get in it and stop talking about it. Because 
by the time it's obvious that it's going to happen, you will already miss the opportunity. You'll spend three times more to get into the market at that point, and and it'll be kind of too late um, to actually get the long-term economic gain out of it, in my opinion, right? And and you see this over and over again, whether it's Uber or Tesla or any of these guys, they jump in so much earlier before the regulation is perfected, but that it's reasonably foreseeable that, that it's going to happen. And they get to ride the entire wave up versus having to carve a channel out once the wave is done. All right. So I got to back up on two points here because I have questions. Sure. What can you get arrested for in Oregon for drugs? <laughs> Not much of anything unless you're going across state lines. I mean, you get a misdemeanor. I did hear a good one. I don't know if it's true the other day that if, if the cop pulls you over and they find you with a, a, you know, a little bit of marijuana, they might have you throw it out on the ground and then arrest you for littering. <laughs> so, uh, so, so other than that, you know, I, I did get pulled over for running a stop sign the other night. So I, I'm a little disappointed that through our drug deregulation, uh, what it means is there's more cops to harass me. You know, m- m- much to my wife's chagrin, my favorite uh, show on Friday and Saturday night is On Patrol Live, where I watch, you know, these cop shows go around different towns. And yeah. every one of the interactions is about drugs. Where's the drugs? Where's the drugs? Right. This would be the most boring show in the world in Oregon because nobody cares where the drugs are hidden. <laughs> they don't. They're not looking for those at all. They're much more focused on a whole bunch of other things, which... You know, like I, I, I have this debate with my father-in-law, which is he was he was very much anti-decriminalization of the rest of marijuana, all the rest of this stuff. And I said, look, you know, 30 years of 30, 40 years of the drug policy that we've had, I think we can all agree it hasn't worked. I'm not saying that decriminalization is going to work, but I'm at least willing to try something different. You know, there was this stand-up comedian a few years ago. I forget who it was. He was talking about the legalization and, you know, there's so much cash, there's so much drugs. Yeah. And basically his skit was about how it's going to be a lot different when Amazon guy delivers your weed. Yeah. And this is all like corporate America. This is massive corporate America oh. instead of, you know, the guy knocking on your door. So, Right. And, and what is interesting out here is with the, with the you know, decriminalization, legalization of it, uh, at least in Southern Oregon, they've spun up a lot of task force designed to eliminate illegal grows. And they probably bust, you know, a thousand plant, 2000 plant marijuana operation with a hundred workers every single week, um, nonstop in Southern Oregon. And so they're, so instead of busting the little guy, right. Who, who might have a dime bag or something. I don't, by the way, I don't know what a dime bag is, but I'm just saying, um, I've heard that vernacular. <laughs> and uh, they might instead of busting him, they're going after the cartels and the rest of this stuff, which, you know, is really where the the long term damage to society, I think, economically is coming from is not not the guy enjoying himself on a Friday afternoon. It's it's the rest of that stuff. So I, I really think the biggest limiting factor when it comes to marijuana cannabis banking will be government incompetence. Because it just seems like in many states here, particularly in the Northeast, you know, uh, marijuana will be legalized and we're in three or four years later and it still is nowhere to be had. Yeah. And and the government, 
the, the, everybody thinks there's so much money to be had. You know, Canada, people look at Canada. It's been legal for years in Canada, and there's very little legal operation because of government regulations and restrictions. So, you know, if the government can get out of the way and let private industry prosper, I believe it could be economically viable. But I think it's just going to take such a long time for them to get out of the way. Yeah, I mean, you, you figure Oregon's been, it's really only been seven, eight years. Um, they didn't start busting these illegal grows until last year. So there was like a six-year free-for-all before, because they spent the first five years granting a thousand recreational grow, you know, uh, licenses and medicinal and setting and regulating the dispensaries and all that kind of stuff. And you just have this huge boom of, of all of that kind of stuff. And it's only been the last year or two where they finally have kind of caught up with the initial wave of that. So in, in Oregon's moving faster than everybody else, you know, maybe Colorado is in a similar vein. Um, but I agree with you. It just, it'll take, it'll take the, the, the legal infrastructure and the state of government infrastructure just a long time to kind of catch up with that whole trend. Yeah, I, I just think it's I think it's going to be a part of normal corporate America. You know, my, I think my son's going to tell his grandkids about crazy stuff that happened. You know, this used to be illegal and, you know, right. you used to have to uh, go to crazy places to buy this. And but once it becomes corporate, uh, you know, I think the price yeah. will come down and you'll see consolidation and corporations where it'll just be part of America. And it won't won't it's not I don't think it's going to be this panacea that's going to yeah. change financial banking so no i i agree i don't think it will and even you know the, the difference of now the guy's not going into some shady chuck e cheese parking lot to buy <laughs> buy his weed from his uh guy he's going into a, a commercial establishment showing id you know and, and very quickly yes it brings some new entrants in the market who probably wouldn't do it before but it's no longer you know this this undercover thing i, I will say one of the funniest things about this uh, when we first moved in and started planting grapes and building our winery, there was a guy down the street who had a couple hundred plant recreational, all legal grow. And uh, he's a software developer on the side. And uh, and these kids are the same age as my kids. And my wife and I said, hey, why don't we get together with his family and get all the kids together? We'll have a nice, you know, uh, Thursday afternoon or Friday afternoon or something. And my wife says, no, we can't do that. I said, well, why not? She's like, well, he grows cannabis. I was like, well, we have a winery. What moral high ground are we standing on? Right? <laughs> like, this has gone crazy, right? 80, 80 years ago, you were the bootleggers they, they, mm -hmm. that was getting busted. 100 exactly. years ago. And now, you, you look at that progression, and now wineries are this, you know, high upper class, you know, wine tastings and wedding venues and stuff, right? It's uh, Imagine if we're getting married at the back of the Chuck E. Cheese parking lot with our weed guy. Yeah. Uh. Well, well, Kirk, you, you spoke to our board. Uh, actually, it was uh, about last year on, on a strategic planning session, and I still get compliments on how good it is. Um, awesome. You know, t tell people kind of kind of that are listening um, where they can get in contact with you. What are some of the things they can use you for? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a couple different ways. Credit 2.0 is uh, just cu-2.0.com. Uh, you can also email me at kdrake at cu-2.com anytime. Um, also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I really love doing the strategic planning sessions, you know, thought leadership, future exercises. You can buy my books on Amazon. There's the Credit 2.0 book and the artificial intelligence book. And of course, most importantly, if you want to get some wine, uh, you go to resistancewineco.com. Uh, we've got some great wine out there. I don't have any weed yet, though. 
Okay, we'll, we'll let that one slide. <laughs> well, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's a lot of fun. I respect the work that you do in our industry, and hopefully we can do it again. And I know I'll see you uh, very soon in person at some different conferences. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Always great chat with you. So for everybody listening, uh, please subscribe to Credit Union Conversations on your favorite audio platform. Share it with your credit union coworkers. Uh, if, if you have people you don't like sh- uh, who aren't in the credit union business, share it with them and tell them they need to listen to it. Um, but heck, just share, spread the message at your credit union and uh, we will talk to you in two weeks. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Credit Union Conversations podcast. Have a question? Visit markritter.com for more information.